This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. We've all experienced it, those moments when it seems like you can't lose. Maybe it was a game of poker or basketball, a period of intense creative inspiration, a year when every stock you buy goes through the roof, or when everything you do at work seems to turn to gold. For decades, statisticians, social scientists, psychologists, and economists have spent massive amounts of precious time thinking about whether streaks actually exist. After all, a substantial number of decisions that we make in our everyday lives are quietly rooted in this one question. If something happened before, will it happen again? Is there such a thing as being in the zone? Can someone have a hot hand? Or is it simply a case of seeing patterns in randomness? Or if streaks are possible, where can they be found? Now Wall Street Journal reporter Ben Cohen seeks to answer those questions in a new book titled The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. And today, Ben joins me on the show to tell how a childhood basketball game first got him interested in winning streaks, how his work as a sports writer only further convinced him that there is such a thing as being in the zone, and what recent science has to say about it. He also describes how streaks can negatively bias everyone from baseball umpires to asylum judges, warns that there's an important corollary to the hot hand that can cost you big time, and cautions that there's a big difference between streaks that can be harnessed and those that can't. Plus, Ben shares a tip from baseball on how to tell if you can capitalize on a streak, some advice from basketball star Steph Curry on when to take more risks, and the story of how Shakespeare wrote some of his greatest works in the most unlikely of times. Coming up with the Wall Street Journal's Ben Cohen in just a moment. Ben Cohen is a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where he writes about the NBA, the Olympics, and other topics. Now he's written his first book titled The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Ben Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, Ben, I just mentioned that you're a sports writer, and I guess one of the most obvious examples of a hot hand comes from sports when, say, a baseball player or some other athlete gets on a hot streak and racks up win after win, or the opposite. They can always get stuck in a losing streak, I suppose. So I'm assuming that you've probably been writing about streaks within the context of sports for some time now. That's true. And one of the very cool things about the hot hand and one of the reasons why I was so attracted to write about it in the first place is that for the last 35 years, this is an idea that has been studied by scholars and academics. And the way they have studied it is actually through basketball. So uh, in my defense, not writing about basketball would have been intellectually dishonest. It, this was a perfect <laughs> excuse for me to write about basketball because all of these brilliant people before me actually wrote about basketball. Yeah, and when did you first become interested in this larger phenomenon of streaks beyond just sports and basketball? The first time was probably when I felt it for the first time, which was when I was in high school. I was a, a terrible basketball player is really the only fair way to put it. And yet there was one day my sophomore year of high school playing for an awful junior varsity basketball team when I scored 16 points in one quarter. 
It was more points than I'd scored in, I think, my entire basketball career combined. I still don't really understand what happened that day, but I have this very clear vision of this very strange event in my life. And what I've found since writing this book is that it actually wasn't all that strange because I think we all have uh, feelings about the hot hand. We're all familiar with with those times in our lives when we feel like we can't miss. However, when it, the first time I really thought about that this could be a book was I had written a few stories about the hot hand for the Wall Street Journal a few years ago. And usually what happens after I write a story is that I just don't want to think about that topic anymore. I've thought about it so much that I'm sick of it. But the opposite kind of happened here. I wasn't exhausted. I was kind of invigorated. Um, yeah. I just, I, it just on a pure story level, the idea of the hot hand was so alluring to me um, that I wanted to keep going with it. And the study of streaks is a relatively recent thing. In fact, I think the first widely published study didn't take place until the 80s. And that first study essentially debunked the idea of a hot hand. It concluded that streaks were nothing more than cognitive bias. But then apparently you say no one wanted to believe it, which has opened it up to further study. So what is the most recent scientific thinking on streaks or is it still mixed? Well, as you said, this whole thing started in the 80s with the first classic study of the hot hand. And what made it such a classic was the counterintuitive conclusion, which is that there is no such thing as a hot hand, right? It doesn't exist. It was this very accessible, digestible, easy to understand example of seeing patterns in randomness. It was our minds playing tricks on us. Mm -hmm. um, but as you said, this was so unbelievable that that people just refused to believe it. We'd all felt the hot hand and we'd seen the hot hand. And now there were some professors coming along telling us that there was no such thing. And it really caused quite a stir for an academic paper. But what's changed in recent years, and really this is why I wrote the book, is that there is this new evidence that has come along and suggested that uh, our intuition may have been right all along. And th this new evidence is powered by new data and new ways of thinking about it. Uh, there was a big study in 2014 and 2015 that suggests that we may have been thinking about the hot hand wrong for the last 35 mm -hmm. years. Now, that doesn't mean that like the hot hand always exists. I think uh, to think about it, uh, it doesn't mean the hot hand always exists. It means that in some cases it might. And when it might, we might be able to take advantage. And I think that you say that scientists now believe that, at least uh, from a creative sense, our best work usually comes in bunches, which would sort of suggest that creative types should probably churn out more work after they have a successful project. How does that work? Is it all psychological or is success self-reinforcing? I think that's one of the great mysteries about the hot hand still, and I think that's mm -hmm. part of the fun of playing around with the idea for ourselves and figuring out where we land on it. But the science of streaks is actually uh, – the science of streaks that you refer to in terms of uh, creativity over the course of a career is this sub-branch in, in this field of hot hand studies. And there was a professor named Dashen Wang who looked at movie directors, artists, and scientists, and he found – objective ways of measuring their best work. And what he found was really fascinating. He found that a lot of their best work comes in bunches so that if you were to know what your best work was, what your highest rated movie was, what your art that sold for the most was, he could probably point to your second and third best work because that's how creativity works. It's clustered. Uh, and, and those times in our lives when we do have the hot hand, those hot hand periods, they tend to define our careers.
Yeah, it makes me think of the year that Steven Spielberg had the top box office grocer, Jurassic Park, and the big Oscar win with uh, Schindler's List. Now, the term hot hand most immediately brings to mind card games like poker or blackjack. Is there such a thing as a hot hand in gambling? Isn't it all just chance? That's right, and that's what makes it so interesting. There's a corollary of the hot hand that psychologists call the gambler's fallacy. And the way I like to think about the gambler's fallacy is actually through basketball. So uh, if you allow me to say, like, if you're in an arena and you watch Stephen Curry make three shots in a row, everybody in the arena thinks that he's making a fourth shot, right? That's Mm -hmm. what we've been conditioned to believe. That's what research has shown. Everyone thinks he's making a fourth shot. However... If you walk into a casino and you walk up to a roulette wheel and you see the roulette wheel land on red three times in a row, what research has shown is that most people will bet on black the fourth time. And the crucial distinction there is of control. When we feel that we are in control, we think that a hot hand is possible. But when we understand that it's out of our control, we actually feel the opposite way. We bet on black instead of betting on red. And Mm. the difference there is between what I like to think of as skilled performance and random performance. Mm -hmm. Skilled is when we can take advantage, and random is when we're at the mercy of chance. And the smartest thing you can do is not bet on the hot hand. Mm -hmm. So when you have a game that is purely chance, no possibility of having a, a statistical or strategic advantage in it, basically you have the same odds every hand, right? Yeah, and it's silly. I mean, yeah, and... Maybe you will uh, get a hot hand and maybe maybe the roulette wheel will spin your way a few times in a row. Mm-hmm. But that's not because of anything you're doing, right? It's mm-hmm. just because you're lucky that night. And, you know, Las Vegas takes advantage of this. We sure. want to be lucky and and we tend to think that we should be lucky and we bet our money accordingly. And that's why there are a whole lot of casinos standing in the desert. <laughs> And applying this more broadly, is there very much difference between the gambler's fallacy and the sunk cost fallacy? Isn't it just another way of chasing a loss or throwing good money after bad, whether it's making bad investments or chasing a bad relationship? That's interesting. I've never thought about it that way, but I think that you're probably right. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I think the lesson here is maybe just don't spend your money gambling on a roulette wheel, right? Regardless of whether it's the gambler's fallacy or the sunk cost fallacy or the hot hand fallacy, you're probably better off uh, saving your money and like dumping it into the nearest index fund, essentially. (laughs) Okay. Now, you explain in the book that streaks can unfairly bias everyone from baseball umpires to judges. Do you think that the gambler's fallacy might be responsible for more than a few bad calls in life? Yes. So the people who study decision-making have actually looked at the hot hand and the gambler's fallacy to see how our minds play tricks on us and what the human consequences of those fallacies can be. So there was one brilliant paper uh, led by an economist named Toby Moskowitz a few years ago that looked at gambler's fallacy in the decision-making of people in authority positions. So the first group of people that he looked at were baseball umpires. And what he found was that if an umpire calls two strikes in a row on close pitches, he is much less likely to call a third strike on another close pitch because in his mind, that umpire is trying to even out the probabilities, right? So Hmm. in the book, I write about an at-bat from seven or eight years ago in a game between the Oakland Athletics and the Texas Rangers, this meaningless game Uh, that nobody else would have any reason to remember. And what happened in this at-bat is that the pitcher got two strikes on really close pitches. The third pitch comes. 
radar tracking in the stadium shows later that it is a strike, right? It's a really close pitch, but it's a strike. The umpire calls it a ball because he's already called two close strikes and he doesn't want to give the pitcher a third strike. He wants to even out the probabilities. And what happens on the fourth pitch? The batter hits a home run. Instead of being punched out the pitch before, this gives him a second life and he takes advantage of it. Now, that's sort of a trivial example, but it's not just baseball umpires. This same paper found that asylum judges act the same way. If they have given, if they have, if asylum judges have granted asylum in two or three cases in a row, they are much less likely to grant asylum in a fourth case, regardless of the merits of the case. That's really crushing, right? That's not talking about a baseball player getting uh, a third strike. It's a, a, a refugee who is really in need of coming to the United States being being less probable to get asylum simply because of the people who happened to come before him. Yeah, and I have to imagine that there's also an outside force playing on those umpires and judges because, you know, an umpire has people in the crowd yelling at him if he's calling strikes one after another, or, you know, maybe a judge doesn't want to be perceived as being too soft if he grants, you know, one after another asylum. Right. A baseball umpire goes to work with 50,000 people screaming at him, right? Forget about the people in the batter's box or on the pitcher's mound or in the dugouts who think that every call he makes is wrong. And an an asylum judge really does not want to uh, risk provoking the wrath of bureaucracy. It's safer to say no, right? It's safer to to not grant asylum, even if uh, that refugee is deserving. And uh, and that's what we see happen um, in an alarming number of cases. And I could also see how this could probably be a problem in education. Do teachers sometimes have biases when they're just grading one paper after another? And what's the best way to avoid that? Of course, if, if, if you happen to grade two papers in a row that are great, right, that are the best papers that you've read all day and you give them an A+, the third paper that you read probably is not going to read all that great, even if it's an A or an A minus, right? Mm-hmm. You might be more likely to give it a B or a B plus just because of the papers that came before. So what this professor who ran this study about baseball umpires and asylum judges did is that he actually took a behavioral tweak that uh, that he thought about while writing this paper and he applied it to his own life. He now gives out his papers to his teaching assistants and he shuffles the order in which they read them to ensure that they are not prone to the very bias that he wrote about. Now, ideally, in a perfect world, asylum judges might do the same thing, right? But mm. but they are so backloaded with cases, it is in such a crisis mode right now that it's not possible. In a classroom, maybe it is. In the asylum court, not so much right now. Interesting. And I think that you say that managers should also keep this in mind when reviewing job applications. I, I, I do think that. I think it's it's actually similar to the professor who is grading exams, right? You want to hire the best person and uh, you want to hire the best person regardless of the application you read beforehand or after uh, a certain application. So mm-hmm. read them twice, read them in a different order, try to to see these applications in a new light and you might see something that you hadn't seen before. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more when we come back in just a minute.
Folks, times are tight for many Americans right now, and according to a 2019 study by the Federal Reserve, roughly 4 in 10 Americans wouldn't be able to come up with $400 in a financial emergency. What would you do if your laptop just up and went kaput? Or you suddenly needed expensive plumbing or electrical work in your house? You can't just go without water or power, so what are you going to do? If staying on top of your budget and protecting your home are goals for this year, take a look at American Home Shield. They give you a plan when stuff breaks down in your home. What kind of stuff? Refrigerators, ovens, heating and air conditioning, plumbing, electrical systems, stuff insurance doesn't cover, and stuff you don't want to mess with or go broke trying to get fixed. American Home Shield founded the home warranty industry almost 50 years ago, and as the nation's largest provider, they've paid more in home warranty claims than any other company, including $2 billion in claims over just the past five years. There's also a nationwide network of more than 15,000 licensed professional contractors so they can find the right pro in your area to fix your problem. Go to ahs.com kick today to save $50 and start protecting your home and budget from inevitable breakdowns. ahs.com kick. That's ahs.com kick for $50 off any plan. American Home Shield. Be sure with S.H.I.E.L.D. Limitations and exclusions apply. See plan for details. And you share a story in the book about how Spotify actually had to make their shuffle function less random to feel more random to listeners. What does that have to do with the hot hand and how randomness works in reality versus how we perceive it? So the reason why the hot hand uh, has been studied for so long by psychologists and economists and statisticians is because it's this really clear example of seeing patterns in randomness, seeing patterns where they may not exist. And the reason why human beings do that is because it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around randomness. We're not very good at it. And Spotify, and actually Apple itself, learned this lesson over the course of the last decade or two <laughs> in the same way. Spotify, uh, not long after it was released to the world, kept getting complaints uh, from a surprisingly large number of users who suddenly had like all of these millions of songs just a few taps away on their phone, and yet there was something that bothered them. They thought that Spotify's shuffle function was broken, and the problem was that it wasn't actually shuffling music. They thought that it wasn't randomizing the music that they wanted to be random. Now, Apple had come across the same problem a few years earlier. There's this amazing clip of Steve Jobs at an Apple keynote event explaining this problem and sort of laughing at the absurdity of it. The way that they both fixed it was that they changed their randomness algorithms that govern our playlists and the music that we listen to. They made it less random to feel more random. So what Spotify did was they took a, a, a playlist. Think, think about if you have a playlist of like Beyonce, Billy Joel, and the Beatles, and it's all those three artists, and they're, uh, they're dispersed over the course of the playlist. You don't want to hear Billy Joel twice in a row, right? You don't want to hear the same song twice in a row. And yet pure randomness means that you will sometimes. So what they did was that they dispersed those songs evenly over the course of the playlist so that we could listen to music and random music the way that we think of as randomness. It was this small tweak that is a little bit absurd. It sounds a little bit crazy, but it's what we want. And the reason that this... The reason that this applies to the hot hand is because it shows that we are not always rational when it comes to randomness. And that may be why we see the hot hand where it doesn't exist sometimes. Can we apply the hot hand to investing? 
We can. And, and it's actually why I think all of these people have been studying it for so long, because it yeah. does have all these wonderful applications to real life. The question, though, is like, do you want to give your money to uh, an investment manager who claims to beat the market every year, right? Yeah. If, if like someone Bernie beats Madoff. the market two or three, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to give your money to Bernie Madoff. I think that's a fair thing to say, but yeah. it's it's a brilliant example of it. And if, if someone beats the market two or three years in a row, are they more likely to beat it the next time? Mm-hmm. And some of the smartest people uh, in finance have come to the conclusion that they're not. And I think this is what is really powering the passive revolution in investing right now. That it's not just that uh, it's not just that the fees of active managers can cut into a profit. It's that sometimes the best thing you can do is put your money in, into an index fund that mirrors the market and lets the market go to work for you. I write in the book about the rise of this firm called Dimensional, which was founded by this guy David Booth, uh, and he studied under the Nobel laureate Eugene Fama and was bred to believe at the University of Chicago that markets were efficient, which was this crazy idea at the time, but. It has become conventional wisdom today. And not even, you know, David Booth thinks that probably there are people out there who can beat the market, but it's silly to think that you're able to predict who they are in advance. Mm -hmm. And one of the really uh, odd things about David Booth, and one of the reasons why I loved writing about him so much, is that he has this amazing basketball connection. He grew up in Lawrence, Kansas on a street called Naismith Drive. Naismith as in the founder of basketball, James yeah. Naismith. And he's a huge basketball fan. And so he knows, like he has seen the hot hand in basketball for himself. Uh, and yet he has made his fortune by betting on the exact opposite. And he's made so much money over the he's made so much money over the course of his life that a few years ago he actually won the auction to buy the original rules of basketball as written by James Naismith wow. at Sotheby's. <laughs> so uh, it all comes together in this very odd and funny way. Huh. Do you have any idea how much he paid for it? I do. Uh, I think it was like $3 million. Wow. Um, it's, it, it cost a lot of money. He donated them to the University of Kansas afterwards, and he beat a guy named David Rubenstein, who uh, I think most people know as this billionaire who has bought like essentially every historical artifact. Not quite, but it sometimes <laughs> feels that way, like sure. constitutions yeah, yeah, and Magna Cartas <laughs> and declarations of independence. I mean, everything. I think he once described his strategy as, I buy everything. But this one thing he couldn't buy, he was beat in this auction. And wow. he, he, it was a blind auction. <laughs> he, he didn't know exactly who it was, but he could tell when, it kept going, when the price kept going higher and higher that he was not going to win this auction. The other <laughs> guy on the other side of the auction wanted this thing so badly that he just let him have it. And mm-hmm. that guy was David Booth. Yeah. And this is just one example of how you go beyond the science of streaks to tell these personal stories of people whose lives have been transformed by the hot hand. Do you have a favorite case study? You know, I, I am partial to Steph Curry. I, I, as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, I have written so many stories about Stephen Curry and the Golden State Warriors. Uh, I sometimes feel like I write about Steph Curry as much as people at the rest of the paper write about like Goldman Sachs and Donald Trump sometimes. <laughs> but the, I, even I was surprised uh, after five, six years of just writing thousands and thousands of words about Steph Curry and how he has changed basketball, I did not realize the degree to which the hot hand changed his life, changed the fate of the Golden State Warriors, and really changed the future of the whole NBA. And in the book, I tell the story of the night that Steph Curry says that he was the hottest he's ever been. He made 11 of his 13 three-pointers against the New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden in February 2013. And everything about his life changed afterwards. And one of the really cool things that I was not expecting 
was that there was almost nothing to suggest that that was going to be the night that he got hot. In fact, they had played the night before. They'd gotten into a fight. Some of his teammates had been suspended. He was lucky to be fined $35,000. Like nobody has ever been luckier to lose that much money because (laughs) what happened when they got to Madison Square Garden after he got on the wrong bus and the bus that he got on got pulled over on the way to the arena. He was late. He was rushed. And something clicked. And he doesn't quite know why it happened that day. Um, He can't predict when it will happen in the future. But the thing that he said to me that I thought was really interesting was once it happens, you have to embrace it. And I think that's a really great way to think about the hot hand. Mm -hmm. Once it happens, you have to embrace it. So embrace it and like, you know, try not to get burned by it is my best advice. (laughs) Yeah, I think that he said that when he's hot, he actually embraces a riskier strategy and takes more chances. How do you know when to do that? Because that can be very risky. It can be very risky, and it, but it's common in basketball. I mean, w- what I think you'll see in basketball is when someone makes two or three shots in a row, they will take longer shots, right? They will mm-hmm. take deeper shots. They'll take harder shots. And it's not just their behavior that changed. It's not just their behavior that changes. It's actually the behavior of the defense as well. They'll play them closer. They'll double team them. They'll make mm-hmm. it their mission to make sure that that person does not shoot. Because everyone thinks that that person is hot, not just that person. It's everyone in the entire arena. Their momentum warps the behavior of everybody around them. And this is actually one of the reasons why the hot hand went disguised for so long is because in basketball, you do take harder shots and you are less likely to make those shots. So Mm -hmm. one of the, the recent papers in this literature about the hot hand that uncovered a small effect of the hot hand, essentially showing that maybe the hot hand does exist, the way they were able to find it was by controlling for the difficulty of a shot. And once you do that, they found that you were slightly more likely to make a shot when you had made a few in a row. That's fascinating. And you also point to William Shakespeare as the beneficiary of a streak at probably one of the most unlikely times in his career. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite stories in the book. Uh, For a long time, when Shakespeare scholars studied his work, they didn't really care all that much about the chronology of the work or how frequently he wrote. So if he wrote 24 plays over the course of 12 years, they just calculated that he wrote two a year and then moved on. They didn't really pay much more attention to that. Uh, And because of that, they thought that he was a metronomic writer. They thought that he was pretty regular. But It turns out that he wasn't. He ran hot and cold. He wrote in streaks. And one of the great hot streaks of his career was when he wrote King Lear, Macbeth, and Anthony and Cleopatra in a very, very concentrated amount of time. So short. Some people think it was two months. Like, they just came pouring out of him. And the question is why, right? Like, what was different about when he wrote those plays? And the answer, funnily enough, is they came in a plague year. The plague was actually kind of like Shakespeare's secret weapon. It gave him time to write, and it killed off his competition, and it put theatergoers in this state of mind that they wanted to see his type of work again. And he was able to recognize that the environment was right for him to keep writing, even though it was a plague year, um, because of a funny thing, and so much as anything can be funny about like a horrible disease like the plague. The plague was a constant in Shakespeare's life. Um, he probably should have died when he was an infant due to plague. It was with him in the first months of his life. And uh, it followed him 
throughout the rest of his life. It's actually in Romeo and Juliet, which I'm actually embarrassed to admit I didn't realize it when I read it in middle school. I didn't realize it when I read it in college as an English major. I just skipped right over it. But uh, the plague is in Romeo and Juliet, and it kind of changes the entire play. Wow. So the lesson here is all those authors out there, start doing your most prolific work right now as the coronavirus spreads. <laughs> That's right. You never know. You might be able to uh, find the gr- the next great love story yeah. uh, from coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. I just love all these case studies in the book. And continuing along the theme of art, you illustrate how taking a fresh approach to old problems actually helped to uncover a long lost Vincent van Gogh painting. Tell us a little about that. That's right. Uh, we we know most of where Van Gogh's work is at this point. It's mm-hmm. been like pretty well chronicled over the course of the last 150 years or so. But uh, even until recently, there were some works that were missing or were misidentified. And it turns out that uh, one painting called Sunset at Montmajor had been mistaken for the course of about a century. It, it was thought to be missing and it was really hiding in an attic where uh, it had been banished when one person who trusted the word of one of his professional rivals over this art expert who he specifically hired uh, to consult on matters of authenticity. He believed his professional rival when he told him that it was not a real Van Gogh. And so it sat languishing in this attic for uh, for almost 100 years. And only very recently, only I think in 2013, were scholars able to confirm that this was a real Van Gogh. And the way they were able to do that was simply by looking at the problem in a different way. They didn't come to it with any preconceived notions. They were able to look at it in a new light. And once they did, they saw something that nobody else had seen before. They saw something that turned out to be real. And to me, you know, th- that has nothing to do with the hot hand per se, although... I will say that Van Gogh had this incredible hot period when he was in Arles in 1888, which happens to be when this painting uh, was done. To me, it it speaks to the the whole saga of the hot hand, the the way that we have discovered the hot hand again, this thing that went from real to maybe fake to maybe real again, is economists uh, living in Europe named Josh Miller and Adam Sanjurjo we're able to look at this problem of the hot hand and see a mathematical bias, this this very subtle statistical quirk uh, that nobody had seen before. And it changed our entire thinking about the hot hand in very recent years to the point that statisticians themselves, mathematicians, people who should have seen uh, this very subtle statistical quirk, they almost feel embarrassed that they didn't because they don't know why they didn't. But these guys were willing to look at the problem in a new way, and they saw something uh, really novel that is is something of a breakthrough in this field of hot hand hmm. studies. So is it fair to say that certain areas are more conducive to a hot hand than others, or is there a blanket law of the hot hand? I don't think there is a blanket law of the hot hand. I think part of this is figuring out what you think about the hot hand for yourself. But mm-hmm. I do think that I, I think that the issue is of control. I think that when you feel that you have control of your own fate uh, in, a, in a specific job, in a certain industry, even in times of your life, when you feel hot, you can take advantage. But when you recognize that you're at the mercy of chance, you, you probably can't take advantage of the hot hand. And it's really critical to differentiate between the two because, yeah. you know, it can backfire spectacularly if uh, you think you have control, but you don't. Yeah. <laughs> so then how does one distinguish between a hot hand and just a one-off success? I <laughs> I think that's like the fun of the whole thing. And I, yeah. I'm still not quite sure myself, <laughs> even after 
thinking about this for the last, you know, four or five years. I mean, I, there are times in my life when like writing, I, I think that sometimes I have control when I am writing a story, right. Or if mm -hmm. I'm reporting a story, but you know, sometimes also news breaks and the story that I'm writing just seems impossibly trivial. So, um, I think that is why, uh, we're so compelled by this idea. We're so captivated by it because there are no definitive answers. They keep changing over the course of our life. And we want to know more because, you know, we all remember our brushes with the hot hand. Mm. It's one of the reasons why uh, the first paper about the hot hand um, was so alluring was that it was telling us something that just seemed like it couldn't be true. Like we all know what it feels like to have the hot hand. So, um, and we're all chasing that feeling always, right? I'm still doing it. If, if, if I played basketball anymore, I'm sure I would play basketball assuming that one day again, I would feel that rush of having the hot hand, even though I know I probably wouldn't. I'm terrible about basketball. <laughs> and you do say that one way to tell if you've got a hot hand is to do what baseball players refer to as a heat check. Explain what that is. A heat check is sort of what Steph Curry does when he feels like he makes two or three shots in a row. He he takes a harder shot. He takes a shot that he wouldn't even dream of of taking if he weren't hot. But it's not just basketball or baseball. Heat checks exist uh, in all of our lives. In the book, I write about Rob Reiner, the the famous Hollywood director, who when he first started out, he made this is Spinal Tap, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and after Spinal Tap. He made The Sure Thing, and Spinal Tap and The Sure Thing, they weren't huge box office hits, but they were uh, but they were critically successful. They earned him the runway to make some more movies. The third movie he made was Stand By Me, which was critically successful, but also commercially successful. And there was, there was this amazing newspaper review uh, of one of those movies at the time by a guy in the Toronto Sun who said that Rob Reiner is successful not because he makes movies that everybody expects to be a hit, but because he makes movies that nobody expects to be a hit. Huh. And so after he made these three movies and he sort of had some capital that he could spend, uh, a studio executive came to him and said, you know, we want to be in the Rob Reiner business. Like you, you seem hot. You seem like you have a hot hand. What is the next movie you want to make? And he said, trust me, you don't want to make the movie I want to make. And she said, no, really, we do. Like, tell us, what is this movie? And he said, no, I'm telling you, you don't. And they go back and forth. And finally, uh, she puts an end to this, like, Abbott and Costello routine they're doing and says, you know, just tell me, what is the name of the movie that you want to make? And he says, I want to make The Princess Bride. And she says, anything but The Princess Bride. <laughs> and it was because The Princess Bride was this great white whale of Hollywood that nobody right. had been able to make before. It was written by William Goldman, which you would think that like everybody would have been dying to make yeah. it. It was right after Butch Cassidy. It was right after All the President's Men. Like I, you you could take his grocery list and, and win an Academy Award by making that movie. And yet it had been haunted. It was like this curse of a movie. Robert Redford tried to make it. Truffaut tried to make it. Jewison tried to make it. They all failed. And if Rob Reiner had known the intimidating history of the movie, maybe he wouldn't have made it. But he also understood that uh, he had some license to take some risk, right? He could do something that he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And I think we're all mm -hmm. lucky for it because if his heat check was The Princess Bride, it, it turned out pretty well for him. That yeah. movie is, you know, one of the great movies. It's like one of the most beloved films ever made. And, yeah. and the cool thing about Rob Reiner is that he actually... Uh, took the success of The Princess Bride and, it was, and he was able to convert it to an even higher plane of success because mm -hmm. after The Princess Bride comes When Harry Met Sally and Misery and A Few Good Men. So he takes this first hot hand and he makes it into a second hot hand. Now, I should say that I have run this theory Bob, 
I have run this theory by Rob Reiner, and he yeah. doesn't exactly agree with it. Oh, really? He says what does the, he say? the Princess Bride was. He says the Princess Bride was still really hard for me to make. It wasn't like people yeah. were lining up so, because they thought I was hot and I could make it. But it, what I think is that like there's no way the Princess Bride gets made if he weren't hot, right? It it allowed him to do something that nobody else wanted him to right. do. Um, but he had license. He was hot. Right, right. He had the juice to be able to get a studio to come on board with that and let him make it. Yeah, definitely. Right. The fact that it exists is almost like proof of the hot hand, right? Right. Now, streaks, of course, cut both ways. Someone can always get stuck in a losing streak. Are there any tricks for preventing a single setback from spiraling into further failure? When I find out, I will be sure to let you know because (laughs) (laughs) it's something I still think about. I mean, one of the tricks that um, Dashen Wang, the statistical physicist who writes about the, uh, the science of creativity says is just keep going, like keep producing work because the best way you can break out of a slump is to just keep going. And it's actually, you know, it's similar to what a baseball manager might say, right? Like if you're, if you, uh, if you can't get a hit at the plate, if you can't make a shot in basketball, the only way that you're going to make it is by keep shooting, right? Yeah. So I think if you were to ask Steph Curry, like, what do you do when you feel cold? He would just say, I just keep shooting until I uh, feel normal again, and that's the only way to get to a hot state. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, How much of a winning streak is about the perception of being on a winning streak and how that affects your opponent, whether you're an athlete or a competitor of any sort, maybe even a politician? How powerful is that air of invincibility in terms of the psychological warfare? I think it's a very big part of it. I think that that uh, momentum, if you will, uh, is a huge part of what allows us to stay hot. Now, once you are hot, even if everyone assumes you're hot, you still have to make that shot, right? Like Mm. if you're Steph Curry and you feel hot and you take a long shot, like you got to make the next one or else like no one is going to think you're hot anymore. If The Princess Bride had been a huge flop, nobody would have been lining up to let Rob Reiner make the movies that he wanted to make that nobody expected to be a hit. So you have to perform and you have to uh, actually do the work, but it's the way that people see you, I think, that makes things Mm -hmm. possible. So then if you're an athlete or you're competing in some way against someone who is clearly on a winning streak, what do you do? Do you just lay down and give up or are there ways to spook someone and throw them off that streak? I think in basketball, it's called a timeout, right? (laughs) You (laughs) you just try to stop the momentum any way you can. I mean, sometimes you throw double teams at someone. Sometimes uh, you're just doing whatever you can to not let that person shoot. Um, Now, I think people who think that the hot hand doesn't exist would say, well, let them keep firing away, right? Like, let Mm -hmm. Steph Curry take a 35-footer with a hand in his face. That's not a good shot, and the probability will go our way. But I think most people who feel that, that there is such a thing as the hot hand will say, like, just do whatever you can to try to stop it. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't, but probably that person will go back to a normal state at some point, and hopefully it's when you're still stuck playing that person. Well, the debate about the hot hand is still ongoing. Ultimately, scientists still seem to be inconclusive as to whether the hot hand really exists or doesn't. What does your gut tell you, Ben? My gut tells me the same thing it's told me since that day as a sophomore in high school in that terrible gym when I was making shots, which is that it does exist in certain uh, situations. Now, I am smarter than ever about the hot hand. Like, I I know when it doesn't exist. I I know uh, not to go to a roulette wheel and bet on black uh, when, you know, it's... (laughs) I I basically know not to bet on roulette anyway. That's really Mm -hmm. the lesson of this book. Don't don't bet on roulette. But um, I think it's very complicated. It's very nuanced. And I think... Uh, thinking anything else is sort of intellectually dishonest. Yeah. I think it's a little bit messy, but I, I do feel uh, reassured that 
that one fleeting event in my life when I was good at basketball. Uh, it was not a figment of my imagination. Something was different that day. And I think I'll probably still be thinking about it for a very long time. <laughs> well, hopefully this book is the start of a streak of number one bestsellers for you, Ben. Uh, again, the book is called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Ben Cohen, thanks for talking with me. Thanks so much. Thanks once more to Ben Cohen for coming on the podcast. Order his new book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. You can read his reporting regularly in the Wall Street Journal and follow him on Twitter at at BZCohen. What would you do if your computer broke down and wasn't covered by warranty? Or you suddenly needed electrical work in your house? Do you have enough saved up to take care of sudden emergency expenses like those? American Home Shield, America's preferred home warranty, gives you a plan when stuff breaks down in your home, stuff insurance doesn't cover, and stuff you don't want to mess with or go broke trying to get fixed. Go to ahs.com kick today to save $50 and start protecting your home and budget from inevitable breakdowns. That's ahs.com kick for $50 off any plan. American Home Shield. Be sure with Shield. Limitations and exclusions apply. See plan for details. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and rate and review us while you're there. Five-star ratings and detailed reviews are one of the best ways for new listeners to discover the show. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickassNewsPod and recommend us to your friends on your social media. For more fun stuff, visit KickassNews.com and I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickassNews.com. For now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kickass News.